You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Please sort of set that expectation that we have come into this place that God would speak in the present tense through his word among his people by his spirit. We ask for and expect nothing less. Now, if you leave this place and you go, yeah, I don't know. All I, all I saw was some cool slides. Okay, I would love to talk with you about how come. Because we are convinced that God speaks in the present tense when we open his word. And we also know that God is sometimes difficult to hear if we are out of fellowship, if we are practicing a pattern of living apart from God. Even though we're believers, if we're out of fellowship, if we're not experiencing and enjoying and practicing his presence. And so I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for the joy and the grace of getting to agree with God that there are things in my life that are outside the character of his son, Jesus. And I get to say, God, I'm the kind of guy who, and I've I've thought these things, and I've done these things, and I've said these things, and I haven't done these things. Would you take all of that, and would you nail it to the cross of Christ? And would you raise me to walk in newness of life all over again? And he's screaming at me, yes, yes, done. Now we're good, and let's go. So I'm so thankful for that because I, of all people, need the grace of God to be able to stand on this stage and say, thus saith the Lord. And you, of all people, need the grace of God to be able to say, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. And so we get to come together, this thing called the church, the new covenant community of the Spirit. And the way it works is we sing together. We engage in corporate response and worship, where our theology informs our worship and our worship informs our theology. We sing things together that we agree with, that connects us as a body, it connects us through space and time. We're not the only people who have thought this stuff up, because we didn't. This is a part of who the church is. And then we listen to the teaching of God's word, trusting that he will speak to us in the present tense. And so that's my privilege, is to lead us this morning here in just a moment through God's word. And to do that, I want to start off by sort of a, just an illustration, a story, as all this week I've been reminded of some of my greatest embarrassing moments. Like, you know, you've got those, that you, you just find yourself as you think about them decades later, like literally groaning out loud, like, oh boy, I'm such an idiot. I do that all the time. And I was reminded of one this week that happened about 25 years ago-ish, somewhere in there. I was working for my very first company out of college in Northwest Houston, a large computer manufacturer, and uh, was doing pretty well. I was enjoying success and was a part of a team that was really, really a great group of people to work with, really cool men and women. And I had a manager named Brian, and Brian was uh, the coolest guy. He was so far ahead of his time. He was like a mid-90s millennial. They didn't even have millennials back then. But this cat was like wearing skinny jeans, drinking wheatgrass smoothies, listening to Coldplay before Coldplay existed. I mean, he was the coolest guy. The rest of us are still walking around in hiking boots, wearing flannel, listening to Pearl Jam. Not Brian. Brian was cool. And I remember one day he calls me into his office and he says, Hey, Eric, I want you to help me. I want you to help me put together a, a 360. 
Well, for us, that was a way that we would come up with a profile of someone who was going to be officially tapped to be a leader. And so he says, I want you to sit down and I want you to, I want you to help me devise and sort of articulate the 360 that's going to be our new team leader. Like he's the floor boss, he's the director, but I need, I need a new team leader in this area. And I want you to help me come up with all the, all the characteristics, all the skills, the, the strengths, all those kinds of things. And so, okay, fine, great. I'm, I'm happy to do that. Because, of course, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, Yahtzee, I'm getting promoted. Yay. And so we sit down and we start talking. And I said, well, you know, I, I think it needs to be someone who's, uh, who's good with people. I mean, it wouldn't kill him to be able to speak Spanish. Uh, probably good that he's, you know, got sort of a, or she's got a technology flair, blah, 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 all of these different things. Probably needs this level of experience. And all of these things, you know, how do they solve problems? How do they lead others? How do they deal with conflict? All these kinds of things. And we get to the end of it, and he sort of pushes back, and he's like, wow, this, I think, I think we've nailed it. This is exactly, this is exactly what we're looking for. This needs to be our next team leader. I said, man, this has been like one of the greatest exercises of my career. So, so cool. He says, well, all right, then, wow, thank you so much for your time. Listen, you get, obviously, you gave that a whole lot of thought, and um, I mean, I just want to tell you, I really appreciate it. I hadn't thought about some of the things that you brought out, but it's really been helpful, and uh, listen, I'm going to ask you not to say anything to, until tomorrow morning. I said, no problem, I'll, uh, I won't say a word. And he said, and um, I'll probably tell Dave tonight that he's going to be our new team leader. <laughs> and the, I, like, I'm pretty sure I coughed out my spleen. So, like, well, I'm sorry, what, Dave? Like, I think my voice cried, Dave, what? Are you serious, Dave? He's a knuckle-dragger. He can't even, he certainly didn't speak Spanish. I mean, Dave, and he said, well, yeah, I thought you, I thought you had Dave in your mind as well. Who, who are you thinking of? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, 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 I was thinking of, of me. And he said, really? Huh, how come? No reason, no reason at all. But it struck me profoundly and deeply way back then that my default mechanism is to assume that it's all about me. Of course they're talking about me, because my favorite subject topic is me. I love me some me. If you don't ask me, just ask me. I'll tell you about me. And then when you're done talking about me, I'll say enough about me. Let's talk about what you think about me, right? It's just how, I, how I'm wired. And unfortunately, sometimes that same default self-centeredness can also impact the way we read our Bibles. And in fact, I think we are alive in an age where those who do read their Bibles, or at least who congregate regularly, hear the teaching of God's Word, and their immediate instinctive assumption is that it's about them. And it is not. This spring semester, we're going to start an entire series, and we're going to be walking through the life of David. And I have heard, and I, I hope I haven't been guilty of this, but I have heard many a sermon, many a lesson, many a teaching on the life of David that goes instantly from the life of David to you or to me. And if we read the life of David that way, we will go on a tremendous adventure in missing the point. The Old Testament was not written to us. It's not about us all of the stories in the Old Testament are pointing us towards something. 
But we have a tendency to say, okay, there's a story about a shepherd boy and a giant. In that story, I'm the little boy, and I have these giants in my life. That is a tremendous error and a tremendous misread of what that scripture is intended to say. There's wonderful, rich characters in the Old Testament, but they're not about you at all. You could read the narrative of Samson in the book of Judges, chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. You could read that and go, okay, I get it. It's about a guy that God sets apart from birth, raises him up, gives him unique abilities, but he messes it up. And so the moral of that story of Samson is don't date foreign women, never cut your hair, and don't steal your buddy's underwear. Like, I got it. That's the moral of the story of Samson, right? No, because I've done all three of those things, actually. And it's, God still loves me. No, it's not about that. It is about the one that we are being pointed to in the narrative of Samson. All of the scriptures are pointing us towards something else. The, the glory of the gospel even picks up and elaborates all of that. Because there is the work of one man who has actually come, and I am identified, I am invited to be identified as in him and not identified according to what I deserve. Because the reality is I have failed in ways more consistently, more catastrophically, more cosmically than Adam or old King Ahab or wicked King Manasseh. I would have blown it way earlier and way worse than those kings. I would have been way worse than all of the people who were guilty of adultery or deception or whatever else. So, so it can't merely be a story of fables like Aesop's fables that we toss aside. No, there's, there's a whole lot more telling us about the one who has come that is the perfect fulfillment of all of those stories, right? Which is why our series this semester is so profoundly and immediately impactful. We're going to study the life of David. And we're not going to jump straight to ourselves. We're going to see what does the life of David teach us about Jesus. We're not going to read David and jump to us as if there's just a bunch of morals that we try to remember if it's convenient. What does the story in the life of David tell us about Jesus, who is a better David than David? We're, we're going to find out is that David was a so-so David, but Jesus was a better David than David. And this morning as we go to our passage, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. It's the very middle of the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we're going to read the story about the anointing of King David. This is how we're going to start. As we study this shepherd, warrior, poet, and king, this morning we're simply going to get the ball rolling and talk about his anointing. And that leads me to our big idea for the morning. Our big idea, and it's a big one, and I want it to be profound, and I want it to be the thing that rings as you walk out of here. It goes like this. It's all about the anointing. It's all about the anointing. And I'll spend the rest of our time together sort of defending that and unpacking that. But for now, we're just going to read through 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'll begin reading in verse 1. 1 Samuel 16, 1. The Lord, that's Yahweh, said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. 
and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Always a good idea. If that goes on your tombstone, you will have done a very good job indeed. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look upon his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as men sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is God's word. Let me give you a little bit of uh, an on-ramp, if you will, sort of a, a jump start into our whole series as we've just heard of the anointing of King David. Last week, we talked about Deuteronomy chapter 17, that it was God's model for the monarchy. All of the ways that a king in Israel is supposed to lead with nobility and dignity and wisdom and humility. We also discerned pretty quickly that the king would be, though awesome as the leader, as the ruler of Israel, never existed in Israel's history or any place else for that matter. And so we, we read that model for the monarchy, but it leaves us wanting more. Which brings us, of course, then, to the life of King David. Perhaps more than any other Old Testament figure or character, David points us to Christ. Every character of the Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus in some way, but maybe, just maybe, David is the one who most completely does. Sure, Moses is the prophet and the, the speaker on God's behalf, and the whole Gospel of John is trying to say that Jesus is a better Moses. And so, yes, Moses is a type of Christ. Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, is obviously and evidently a type of Jesus that points us to the coming Messiah. He is sold by his brothers into the Gentiles, and that Gentile uh, kingdom he raises up where he feeds and blesses the nations. Yes, Joseph is a tremendous prefiguring of Christ. you got a guy like Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who is a priest king that even Abraham bows down and gives homage to. And Psalm 110 tells us that there will come another priest king, and Hebrews tells us it's Jesus. He's the ultimate priest king. So there's a lot of characters in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that are pushing us forward towards Jesus, but all of those are getting us ready for the ultimate appearance of God's promised anointed one, the Messiah. And we know that because the Bible tells us so. The Bible tells us that all of the characters in the Old Testament are putting us in readiness for Jesus. 
There's a great, great narrative in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 24, we hear the story of two disciples of Jesus. We don't know who they are. They're not named. I have a sense, I have a tendency to think that one of them might have actually been Luke himself, but we don't know that. Two guys are walking on the way to a little village called Emmaus, and they're talking about all of the sad things that have happened with the one that they believed was the anointed one, the Christ, that he suffered, and that he bled, and then he died, and it wasn't supposed to go this way. It's not what they expected. It, it, it ended up in great disappointment. And somehow, Jesus just shows up behind them. And they don't recognize him. Who knows why? He's uh, veiling his appearance, or it's dark, or we don't know why, but they don't know that it's him. And he asks them, what are you talking about? And they say, have you not heard? Are you the only one? You're the only one in Israel that doesn't know that the one we had hoped for, the king, is dead. And Jesus says, oh, you slow of heart. How do you not understand? And he goes on to tell them, don't you get it? Everything in the Old Testament, everything in the scriptures that you're quoting is talking about me. You guys missed it. You thought it was talking about you. You thought you were reading stories that were to apply to you. You've misunderstood. It's all about me, Jesus says. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27. They get one of the greatest gifts, I think, in the history of humankind. Listen to what Jesus does. Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses, that's the Pentateuch, all of the histories, and all the prophets, that's the whole of the Old Testament, including Moses and the prophets. That's everything written in the Old Testament. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Don't you guys see? It's talking about the Messiah. Don't you see? You thought it was a story about Jonah and a whale. It's not. It's about me. You thought it was a story about Noah and some animals and an ark. It's not. It's a story about me. You thought it was a story about Samson killing a lion. It's not. It's about me. You thought it was about a story of a shepherd king. It's not. It's about me. And their ears burned. It suddenly came alive. They began to understand, oh, this is not a book about morality or how to behave all of this is pointing to Jesus, and they got it and they understood. So we look for how these passages, particularly the life of David, points us to the person of Jesus because the text tells us that it's all about him. So then, we come to the life of David. 1 Samuel chapter 16, but I now need to give a little bit of a backstory and a little bit of context into what's going on. You might remember that the nation Israel... God's chosen people have been in Egypt for 400-something years, and God saves them. Because they were the spunkiest and the pluckiest? No. They were the last, the lost, the lowest, and the least, the losers at the back of the line. And God says, y'all are my favorites. And he brings them out of Egypt as though on eagle's wings, and he sets them into a land, says, here it is, let's go in and take it. And they go, I don't know, we, we don't trust the one who just saved us from Egypt. You ever been there? Where God saves you from your own sin and death and depravity, and he says, now let's do this. And you go, yeah, I don't know that you got the chops, God. And they don't trust him. And so they take laps in the wilderness, and that whole generation dies. They go into the land that God has prepared for them with vineyards and fields and houses already ready. And they're supposed to take it under Joshua in the conquest, but they fizzle out and go, you know what? Can't we all just get along? And so they try, and their nation spirals downward and downward into depravity. And they lose all of their distinctives. 
They try so hard to incorporate the other cultures of the Canaanites that they lose who they are. And so God, by grace, raises up judges. And each one of them has to fend off the Philistines or the Canaanites or the whomever. And every cycle gets worse and worse and worse until the end of the book of Judges says there was no king in Israel, meaning God was not ruling them. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. An age of relativism of whatever's right for you is right for you. Whatever's right for you is right for you. Who am I to say? Hard to imagine a world that would develop like that, but just, just go with me. Use your imagination. And so the people say, I know what we need. We need to fall on our faces and humbly repent before the sovereign. May Yahweh have grace. That's not what they do. They say, we want a king. Like everybody else, because it's working out so well for all of them. We want to look with our eyes and see a king. And so they bring in a guy named Saul. Mr. Tall, Dark, and Handsome. Mm. Kingy McDreamy. He was a full head higher than anybody else. He was a Benjamite. He was good with a sling. And they choose him. They choose him as their king. And God says, fine, we'll do this. But the king is to represent me to the people. Therefore, Saul, you have a high standard to which to live. The king is to represent God to the people. How does Saul do? Well, in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, we understand why God rejects Saul. And this is a big bunch of backstory, but you have to get this so that we can understand what's happening with David in chapter 16. God has told Samuel that Saul is to go through and absolutely annihilate the people who are living in the land, the Amalekites and the Amorites. And it's gruesome. It's brutal. It is kill every man, woman, child, livestock, ladybug, and bacteria. You kill it all. And our delicate sensitivities, we go, ooh, that's pretty harsh. Ooh, wow, that's mean. This God of the Old Testament is mean. I choose the God of the New Testament who is love. But we have to understand what's happening. See, God wanted Israel to do a specific task. Every other kingdom before, during, and since has acted with imperialism or colonialism that says, we're going to take you over and take your stuff to build our strength, but not so you, Israel. That's not how I operate. I allowed you to be in Egypt for 400 years while the wickedness of the Amorites ripened, says Genesis 15, and when you come out, you are going to be my instrument of justice upon them. They are sacrificing their babies to their false gods. I am detested. I'm disgusted by them. Israel, you are going to be the tip of my spear as I exact justice upon them. You are to wipe out the Amalekites because they are detestable. This is not about imperialism. You don't need to take their stuff. I am your strength. I am your treasure. I am your wealth. I am your everything. Trust me. Do this. To which Saul says, wow, they got donkeys. And so he kills some of the Amalekites takes all their livestock, takes their treasure, and even captures their king and makes him prisoner. And God says, no, I wanted the rest of the nations to see that I am a God of justice, not about imperialism, not about colonialism. Saul, you have not rightly represented me. You gots to go. And so Samuel grieves deeply. Oh, no, we wanted a king. We got a king. He has failed. We are going into a smoldering ruin, and Samuel mourns. They have rejected God. God has rejected Saul. It's all over. Now, with all that as backstory, let me quickly walk back through chapter 16 
verses 1 to 13. We'll just sort of uh, breeze through this. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Didn't say it was wrong for him to grieve, just, okay, now it's time to move forward. Sometimes that's how we have to comfort one another. How long is this going to go? You've grieved, and there's good reason, but now it's time to go forward. Since I, God says, have rejected him from being king over Israel. I didn't choose him, but I do reject him. That's what kings do. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. <laughs> God says, I'm taking control back. I've never really not had it, but I'm taking control here. I want you to get up and go now, Samuel. You may not feel like it. Get up and go. Ready yourself. Take your horn with anointing oil. Samuel knows exactly what this is about. Go to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And again, if you read this and start thinking, well, this is somehow about me. I am the king that God has provided from amongst all these other losers in this room. Nope. Drastic error. Can't read it that way. God says, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, how dare you question me? Shut your mouth. It doesn't, doesn't say that. In fact, sometimes I think that's how God wants to answer me, but he never does. He understands me better than I do myself. He understands my situation better than I do myself. And so God says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, is God making up a little white lie? No, God doesn't do that. This is not pretext or subterfuge or deception. This is what Samuel does. He's a prophet. He's priest. He's the last judge of Israel. This is a part of what his normal duties are for the people. So God's not saying to make something up. This is what he would have been doing anyway. So take a heifer and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you will do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Now, this is so rich. You remember, this is Jesse, who lives in Bethlehem. Jesse's grandmother is a woman called Ruth, the Moabitess. I have a hunch, because I think Samuel wrote the book of Ruth. I think Samuel probably actually even knew Ruth. I think he knows Ruth, and he certainly knows that her grandson, Jesse, is in Bethlehem, and he has a number of sons. But really important here, verse 3, you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. That's what God says. Now, it loses a little bit of its punch, but there's a verb here that we really want to draw our attention to in verse 3. God says, and you shall anoint for me. The word in Hebrew is Mashiach. You shall Mashiach for me. That's what anoint is, is Messiah. You shall, you shall Messiah for me, him whom I declare to you. In the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word here is Christos. You shall Christos, slather, smear, cover with oil the one whom I, have, who I will declare to you. So this is about an early Mashiach, an early anointed one. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling. <laughs> this is always how a pastor wants to be greeted. <laughs> right? Some of you do that, but for other reasons I don't really understand. But Samuel walks in and all the elders of Bethlehem, and the word is extremely, they're freaked out. They're shaking in their boots. Just, ha, ah. they essentially say, 
are you coming in peace or are we going to leave in pieces? How's this going to go down? Because they had apparently heard the stories that Samuel uh, could sometimes have a temper. Samuel was a bad motor scooter. I don't know what he looked like in my unsanctified imagination. I kind of picture Samuel as like Gandalf, you know, long white beard, has got a sword and a staff, and he whips around, and he beats Balrogs, and that guy, probably not. But, again, back in chapter 15, when Samuel hears that Saul captured King Agag, great name to name your kid, by the way. Hey, Agag, it just sounds like reflux. He meets Agag, and Agag kind of smarts off to him, and so Samuel takes out a sword and just hacks him to bits. Now, that's what I call the pastorate right there. Uh, you, you cross my people, I'm just going to hack you to slices. No, 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 that's a bad idea. But they had seen that he'd killed this wicked king of the Amalekites, Agag, and so they, are you coming in peace or are we leaving in pieces? How's this going to go? They're afraid of him. And he said, verse 5, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Consecrate yourselves. Incidentally, we do this. Every first Sunday of the month, we invite all of us to corporately, communally, congregationally consecrate ourselves. We take part in Lord's Supper, Eucharist, the, the, the Lord's Table, however you want to call it. And we invite you to consecrate yourself. It's the same word. It's the same idea. In their day, they would literally bathe and change clothes as a demonstration on the outside. We say, no, consecrate yourself. Consider, is there anything I'm holding back that the finished work of Jesus would not apply to? Because I'm holding it back to myself. I've created safe harbor for my sin. We say, consecrate yourself before you take these elements. It matters. This is what Samuel invites him to do. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Oh, yeah, this is the guy. This is Kingy McDreamy 2.0. I mean, come on. It's Eliab. He's tall. He's good looking. He's Ruth's great grandson. And he's the firstborn. And oh, by the way, his name, Eliab, it means God is my father. This is the one. This is the one. He walks by, and Samuel bites the hook. You remember that Samuel has been grieving that the king that looked good to everybody else has failed, and yet Samuel is acting just like everybody else. He's looking at the externals alone. He just assumes he's the firstborn. His name is God is my father. It's got to be him, right? Of course it's got to be him. Well, surprise, surprise. Came in, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, and I quote, ah, 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 not so fast. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Not because he's tall. It's not why, but he's not, he's not my chosen. That's why. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. It's been said that we as a species, when we try to evaluate one another, we run the measuring tape around the shoulders and the head, but God wraps it around the soul. His way is better. Even Samuel is susceptible to lean on his own understanding, to look with his eyes and not with his spirit. God says, I don't do it that way, Samuel, and therefore neither should you. Then Jesse called Abinadab. Oh, surely it's going to be Abinadab then. Okay, Abinadab, my divine father is noble. Hello, how about that for a kingly name? 
Come in here, my divine father is noble. Yes, father. And he made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Does God have to do it this way? No, <laughs> but God does it this way. He makes an outward demonstration, a spectacle. All these guys that are the obvious choices, they are not my obvious choices. It's for his brothers to see. It's for Samuel to see. It's for Jesse to see. And it's for us to read thousands of years later. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. Ooh, Shammah, God hears me. Or heard by God. That's what you want in your king, to be heard by God. So Shammah passes by and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Awkward. I brought this cow. The cow is 100% committed now because she's dead. But we still didn't find the one. It's like, hmm. So verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, Well, there remains yet the youngest. And that word youngest could be translated the smallest. The little fella. The runt of the litter. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. I mean, Samuel, come on. He's a shepherd. He's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. He ain't the freshest sandwich in the fridge. He's a shepherd. He smells like sheep squeezins. You don't really want to see him, do you? I mean, the shepherd was the lowest job in the world. And he's out there. and Boy. And Samuel says to Jesse, send and get him. For we will not sit down till he comes here. Oh, now things just got more awkward. Well, there's, you know, dead cow on the fire and seven brothers and Jesse and maybe Mrs. Jesse. And, and there's Samuel and they're not sitting down and nobody's just, how far out is that kid? Where was he anyway? Hey, how do you think Bethlehem's going to do this year? Are they going to beat Galilee? I don't know. And they're just, we're not going to sit down. We're not going to do nothing until David comes. Awkward, sizzling meat, rejected sons. This has been a great day, Dad. Thanks for inviting us to the party. Okay. Verse 12, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. It's possible. In the wild, a good-looking red-headed person. It's true. Now, it doesn't happen real often, but there's one. He's ruddy. He's, literally, he's red. Not because he's mad or he's been running. He's ruddy and he's handsome. The text has to like say it three times to make sure we get it because it's so unusual. He's ruddy and he had beautiful eyes or he was beautiful in the eyes is another translation. And he was handsome. Now that's interesting. It's not why God chose him. But we're being sort of set up to know that, hey, the externals of David are going to get him in trouble later on as well. There's a pluck of a cord of dissonance that goes, ah, now, it's not that he would have not gotten in trouble had he been ugly, because clearly I've messed tons of stuff up. But that's an interesting or description of David. And the Lord said, Arise, Mashiach him, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. <laughs> so there would be witnesses. He would be an anointed in full view of everybody else. So neither they nor he would ever forget it. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Samuel goes to Ramah because that pretty will concludes his ministry. Oh, you'll see him pop up every now and then. In one case, literally after he's dead. That was weird. But generally speaking, Samuel is done. 
the time of King David has come in. He goes back to Ramah. David is anointed king, and the Spirit of God rushes on him, and yet nothing functionally, practically changes in his life. Saul will become, will remain king for quite a bit longer. This David, David which means beloved of God. The story is going to focus on David as the anointed king of Israel, this man who will grow into, who does not presently have, but this man who will go through tremendous trials and tribulations to become the man after God's own heart. He does not become king immediately like Saul did. He will go through a crucible of forming. So what I want to remind us of is this. It's all about the anointing. Last week in Deuteronomy 17, we said that we are all, those of us who are believers, in a sense, we are kings. That we are, Galatians says, men and women, sons of God. We are the recipients of the privileges of being the firstborn of God Most High. So in a sense, we are kings. Well, the New Testament picks up on that and makes it even more spectacular. Has some pretty astonishing language to tell us who God is, what he has done, and therefore who he has declared us to be. Paul's going to say something absolutely astonishing in the book of 2 Corinthians to tell who we are because of who God is and what God has done. Now remember, this is 2 Corinthians. I'm in chapter 1. This is the church in Corinth that was gifted at creating and inventing ways of doing nasty, nasty evils. The church in Europe that was figuring ways out that gets four letters from Paul because of how jacked up they are. Ah, and yet listen to what Paul says about them, and by extension, us. Paul says, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. That's your identity. You are in Christ and has anointed us. We have been anointed. Christos. If it was Old Testament, if it was Hebrew, we'd say we have been Mashiach. We have been Christos. God himself, Jesus, has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us, his pledge, his down payment, his guarantee, his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, an eternal spirit that never departs. See, the spirit of God comes on David. It departs from Saul, but it never, ever, ever, at the anointing of a believer in this age, it never, ever, ever departs. That's what it means to be anointed. It's all about the anointing. And so I want to just give us, now that we've understood that this is about what Jesus has done, now I want to see how does that anointing now apply to us in our everyday lives. So just three quick implications of what this anointing entails. Number one, the anointed isn't the obvious choice. Just look around the room. If you're God, I'm not choosing about seven-tenths of you, all right? If it's all about like the cosmic eternal dodgeball game, I'm choosing half of us last, if that's even possible. The anointed is not the obvious choice, and praise be to God that it is not. We have a tendency to measure people by the size of their bank accounts or their house or their shoulders. God measures the soul. It's not always the obvious choice. We as a society and as a culture spend billions and billions and billions so concerned with the externals where God himself couldn't care less. Yes, we steward our bodies. They are temples of the living God. However, if we nurture and steward our externals with no regard whatsoever to our internals, to our spiritual health and well-being, 
that we're totally on an adventure and missing the point. Now, for some of you, like me, this is the best news you will hear in all of 2018, that God does not care what I look like. Thank you, God. Yes. He loves me as if I am Eric McDreamy. It's nothing to do with my externals whatsoever. Jesus was certainly not what the world was looking for. The book of Isaiah says he was unattractive, unappealing, had no resources, not well-connected. Yes, he came from a good family, but so was everybody else as far as they knew, and nobody really cared. He wasn't strong, wasn't powerful, wasn't, in that sense, intimidating. He was not the obvious choice, but he was anointed. The second thing that this tells us, the anointed is going to be given three things. The anointed, just like David, ultimately like Jesus, and then, of course, in our world, the anointed is given a promise, God's presence, and a purpose. This is what it means to be anointed. God's promise is that he will never forsake us. He is faithful. We can trust him. There has never been a time when God was not faithful. There will never be a time when you cannot trust him. You will never find yourself in a situation in which your only recourse is to sin. You will never find yourself in a situation that God cannot handle. We will spend eternity with him in perfect glory and nearness. We live now in light of future history. We live now in light of future history. That's what it means to be anointed. We have his promise. He loves us and will never forsake us. But number two, we are anointed by the spirit of the living God himself. We talked about this in our study in Galatians and some other times, but Literally the Spirit of God. God could not possibly be closer to you than he is in this age right now. Oh, I just wish I was closer to God. You can't. It would kill you. This is what Corinthians says. You are indwelled by his Spirit. You are in Christ. Christ is in the Father. And yet you are also still dealing with sin in a fallen world. God could literally not be closer to you than he is right now. We don't merely have a guidebook or a rule book or some morals or some fables to try to give us a nudge on how to live. We literally have the spirit of the living God thinking our thoughts with us. Do you know this? It literally is. How would Jesus live my life if he were me? Because that's what he's trying to do by his spirit. If we will, but choose to consciously, consistently be aware of his presence and his leading because he does not shout. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right when he said, it, when we sin, it's not so much that we hate God, it's that we choose to forget him. And then he drew a little picture of me right there in the margin, I think. We have his presence, and he's given us the ability to think God's thoughts after him, and he wants to think our thoughts with us. That's how close the Spirit of God is, his presence. That's what it means to be anointed. But thirdly, he's given us dignity, a dignity to be a child of the king. He creates every single one of us at birth to be a chip off the old block. We are image bearers, and there is something of us that reflects our creator. And when we become believers and the Spirit of God moves in, that thing or things, whatever it is, makes us come alive. And when we do those things, we are carbonated. And when we stifle and suppress them, we begin to die inside. So I don't know what your purpose is, but I strongly encourage you to this 2018, prayerfully pursue it. Ask people who, who know you, who love you, what do you think it is? And they'll know. 
and do that because that's what it means to be the anointed, that you are the recipient of God's promise, his presence, and a purpose. And the third thing that the anointing means is not my favorite, and it certainly doesn't end us on a high note, but it's truth. The anointed always suffers. <laughs> Look at the life of David, all that he had to go through. Look at the life of Jesus, all that he went through. Look at the life of the anointed. Yes, we are indwelled by God's Holy Spirit. He could not possibly be closer, and yet we live with our old sin nature still attached. We live in the midst of a fallen and broken world where things hurt and people die. Some of you know this. Some of you were a part of this yesterday, but we had the opportunity to celebrate the life of little Sophie Skiles yesterday. We go to our South Campus, and little Sophie was two years and nine months old and fought cancer for eight horrifying months. And she died. And this is the worst thing ever. We were not created to die. But we all will, said the Lord Terry. We'll all go through pain and suffering. The book of 1 Peter has five separate sermons on suffering. What is God's will for your life? That you be saved, that you be sanctified, and that you suffer. But that's not the end of the story. But that we would suffer well. Because by grace, God uses those sufferings, the, the fires of those trials, to to Make us more and more like David, a man or a woman after God's own heart. So don't waste the pain. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. And he can handle it. It's all about the anointing. All of the kings of Israel, including David, leave us wanting more. But our Bibles are pointing us to the one who is the ultimate Mashiach, the Christos, the anointed one, Jesus. And we are to be found in him. The book of Hebrews says this king, boy, he's something else. Unlike the kings of the Old Testament, he is a king that cares. He's a champion who died innocently. And he is a big brother who is proud, who sings songs over us. And so if you're here this morning and you're still trying to anoint yourself king over your own realm, God bless you. I pray that you will come to the end of yourself long before you come to the end of your life. And you, are, you will see, like I have, like many in this room have, that you are dangerously unqualified for the job. But there is one who offers to bring you into his identity and to anoint you, to give you promise and presence and purpose. And for the rest of us who have been believers for a very long time, perhaps you've just forgotten who you are. And so maybe a big idea of it's all about the anointing is too long. So I'm just going to give you one word. If you're a believer, may your one word simply be anointed. That you would see yourself in the mirror and preach a sermon to your soul. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of what you're going through, I am anointed. Not because I'm the specialist, not because I'm the cutest, the cuddliest, the smartest, the wealthiest. Because God says so. He has declared and he has anointed me. In the Bible, in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, those in the church at Pergamum are told, to those who overcome, those who crave Christ, I will give a new name written on a white stone. And you know, I just for my own personal need, I have a white stone in my den. We painted white, this big white river rock. And on it, it just says anointed. Because I think it's the thing I need to know the most. 
anointed, chosen by God, the inheritor of all of his promises, you are anointed. Not that you would use that for arrogance and dominance of anybody else, but that you would look at yourself and go, what, if, what, is, what is this anointed life about? Not only that, that you would look at those around you. The old is gone, the new has come. Behold, they are a new creation. She's anointed. She's not in my way, she's anointed. He's not a nuisance, he's anointed. Oh, he, he's not just a community leader, he's anointed. May we be a congregation that reflects the anointing of our king. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the stories of the life of David that point us to a truer David, to the ultimate David. We thank you, God, that your New Testament tells us that we too, by grace, have been anointed. May we have wisdom and courage to live in light of that truth. That's faith. Father, if there is anyone here this morning that does not know you, I pray that you will move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. You will anoint them, that the spirit will be given, that will rush to them, and they will live like it's true. For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us of who you are, what you have done, and therefore who you have declared us to be. And may we be your anointed and live with your promise, in your presence, and on purpose. And I pray these things, Father, the only way I can, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thanks so much for being with us. I am so excited about this sermon series. Next week, we'll crack open chapter 17. Lots of good times to be had yet. Please stand with me if you would. I'll give a word of benediction. We'll be dismissed. Now may our God, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, may he equip you for every good purpose, and may you have courage to follow. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.